All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens, uh, especially if you're new or visiting for the first time. Really wanted to extend a warm welcome to you as well. Um, like Sil said, uh, myself, some of our volunteers, we're usually hanging out at the info table uh, after service. So we'd love to get to know you, uh, help you get plugged into our community. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, we're going to read from verses 1 to 11, and then we're going to jump down to verses 23 to 36. So Genesis chapter 37, uh, verses 1 to 11, and then 23 to 36. This is the reading of God's word. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I uh, and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Okay, and we're going to jump down to verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we jump in here. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock 
and our Redeemer. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time in our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, we are continuing our year-long series called Childlike Wonder, where we're going through every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. So if you don't have a copy yet, you can definitely still grab one at the info table. And all the, again, all the titles in, uh, of these sermons basically reflect the titles that you'll find in the Storybook Bible. And today we come to the story of Joseph. Okay? And Joseph's story uh, takes up a lot of biblical real estate. Uh, the last 14 chapters of Genesis are devoted to this one man's life. That's almost a fourth of the book. And, and there's so much in Joseph's story. Um, one of the challenges of this sermon series has been, you know, trying to synthesize like all of these very rich, complex stories into one sermon, but we're going to try. Uh, obviously can't get to everything, but um, let me just give you a brief summary of Joseph's life, okay? Uh, Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. We learned about Jacob last week. Uh, his brothers are all jealous of him because he is clearly the golden child. He is clearly uh, the favorite son, and he's the favorite son uh, not only, as we read, because uh, Jacob had him in his old age, uh, but also because he's the son of Rachel. And we learned about this last week, but Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved anyone else. He loved Rachel more than any of his wives, any of his concubines. And the thing is, that love just started to trickle down to Joseph. And Jacob doesn't even try to hide it. He has this beautiful coat made just for him, and it doesn't help that Joseph, he's just eating this up, okay? He's, he's literally that annoying little brother who knows how to grind, grind your gears. Um, I'm obviously not speaking from personal experience, but we all uh, have a, a younger sibling like that. And, um, you know, my five-year-old son, Jack, he's in this stage where he just, so annoying to his older sister, you know, he'll be like, oh, there's no ice cream left. Oh, is it because I had two scoops? Sorry, you know. And, uh, like, it's just it's so maddening sometimes, right? And, and this is Joseph to a T. The first thing we read about him is that while he was tending to the flocks with his brothers, he brought their dad a bad report about them. Okay, and the word bad is better translated as false. So, so here Joseph is. He's bringing false reports about his brothers to his dad. He's wearing his expensive robe everywhere he goes. And then he starts having these dreams. And he's like, hey, hey bros, gather around. Kind of had this dream, very strange. Uh, we were binding sheaves of grain. And then my sheaf stood up. And then all your sheaves bowed down to me. Okay? <laughs> you just want to like strangle him. Okay? And then a little bit later, he's like, wait, I had another dream. Even more bizarre than the first. Uh, there was this sun and the moon. And then exactly 11 stars. And I don't know why. They're bowing down to me again. Right? And, and now, like, you know, in Korean, there, there's a very derogatory term that we use to describe people like Joseph. It's, it's shek, okay? Joseph is a shek, okay? He's such a shek. And uh, he is a spoiled, arrogant, self-absorbed teenager, grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. So it is understandable that his brothers hate him. In fact, three times in five verses, we read that his brothers hated him. 
And that hatred grows and grows, and one day these brothers come up with this plan to kill Joseph, and so they strip him of his robe, we just read, and, and they throw him into this pit. And the original plan was to leave him for dead there, but one of the brothers is like, wait, 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 you know, he's still our brother, he's our flesh and blood, I mean, we can't kill him, let's sell him, okay? I mean, very twisted family. And, and, and Joseph ends up getting sold as a slave in Egypt to a powerful man named Potiphar, who's one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We'll fast forward a couple chapters. Um, this is where the story gets really juicy. Uh, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. She's like uh, Mrs. Robinson. You know, I know all the young people here don't know that reference, but she's like Mrs. Robinson. She's super thirsty, cougar. You know, she's like, um, uh, you know, hit, starts hitting on Joseph every single day. We read that Joseph was a handsome, good-looking guy. So, you know, he's, he's out there. He's working on the pool, you know, and he, like, lifts up and, you know, lifts his head up. And she's like, hey, Joseph, what's up? You know, and every day she's hitting on him. Somehow Joseph is able to exercise like ridiculous self-control, resists all of her advances, and then at one point he just leaves his cloak with her and then he just runs for his life, okay? And if you know the story, um, you already know this, but this is where the story kind of turns Gone Girl a little bit because Potiphar's wife then takes the cloak and she basically falsely accuses Joseph of raping her. Okay, and in the end, again, she's a very powerful woman married to a powerful man. Joseph gets thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. Well, while he's in prison, Joseph starts interpreting dreams for other prisoners, and he's so good that Pharaoh's like, Pharaoh hears about him, summons him to interpret one of his dreams, which Joseph does, and he predicts this seven-year famine that's coming, and Pharaoh's like, this guy should not be in prison I need to make him my right-hand man. So essentially makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph successfully leads the country through the famine, and many lives are saved as a result. Okay? Well, during the famine, uh, Joseph's brothers, who we haven't heard from in like 20 years, they come to Egypt looking for food because they're hungry as well. Um, it's been a long time that, since they've seen him, so they can't even recognize Joseph. Well, after a series of more events where that actually involves Joseph's brothers bowing down to Joseph, exactly what, he, what was predicted in his dream that many years ago. Um, Joseph finally reveals himself to him, and it's everyone's in disbelief. It's this crazy reunion. Now, in his brothers' minds, they still don't know, like, what does he think about us, right? They, they, they're not sure what Joseph's going to do. What they did was pretty bad. They know now he's had like 22 years to think about ways to exact revenge. That like bitterness and rage has probably like built up and compounded over time. They're scared. They start begging Joseph for forgiveness. The suspense builds and builds and builds because you're not sure what Joseph is going to say or do. Nobody expects what happens next. And then in Genesis 50, the last chapter of Genesis you get this climactic response from Joseph to his brothers where Joseph begins to weep. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And it's this most unthinkable act of forgiveness where a guy who is literally face to face with the people who made his life a living hell for over two decades, a guy who has all the power and all the capability in the world to make his brothers pay for what they did, decides instead to wipe the slate clean. Now, there are so many different themes you can draw out of this story, 
You know, it's a story about favoritism, envy, sibling rivalry, forgiveness, reconciliation. But if, if there was one big meta theme that kind of encapsulates Joseph's life, I think it would be the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. If there's one verse in the Bible that summarizes Joseph's story, it would be Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that verse is a triggering verse for a lot of Christians. Because it's a verse that's thrown around a lot when you don't want to deal with something difficult. It's just easier to say, but God has a plan for your life. God is working all things out for good. And it has a way of minimizing our pain and the pain of others. I've heard stories of people who've shared their deepest, darkest secrets, who've gotten vulnerable in their community groups or in church and shared about a trauma that happened in their lives or shared about something extremely painful that's happened to them only to hear their pastor or their CG leader say, but don't worry, God has a plan for you. God is working all things for your good. Can you imagine Joseph sitting there at the bottom of the pit in Genesis 37, no clothes, no water, and someone yells, don't worry, Joseph, God is working all things for your good. Is this what you say? Can you imagine what it would be like to be a parent in Israel or in Gaza right now holding your lifeless child in your arms and someone says, God's working all things for your good? Really? He is? God is sovereign? This? This is good for me? Can you imagine someone saying that to a parent who's lost their child? Can you imagine saying that to a married couple going through a divorce? Can you imagine saying that to someone going through such a dark time in their life, suffering from depression, that all of this, that God has a plan for it? It's easier to say it when you're not the one living it. But you see, this is why I think God in his wisdom gave us this story and he devoted so many pages of scripture to it. He doesn't just rush to the good part, the part at the very end when Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt, the part where he's basically saved the entire country from a famine, the part where the, the people who made his life miserable are there groveling for mercy. It takes us 14 chapters to get to Genesis 50. It's as if God wants to show us, yes, I have a plan for your life. Yes, I am working things out for your good, but it's going to take a long time for you to see what that good is because that good is going to come with so much pain, so much confusion, and a lot of tears. The story of Joseph is one of the most honest portrayals of the human experience we have in the entire Bible because it doesn't shy away from the question many of us have asked or will ask at some point in our lives. The question of how a good God could possibly allow such horrible things to happen. It's the million dollar question. People ask me all the time, Jason, how can you tell me with a straight face knowing everything going on in the world, have you watched the news, how can you tell me that God is both sovereign and good? Both of these cannot possibly be true. Either he's not able to stop this stuff or he's not willing to stop this stuff. There's no way because if he were both able and completely willing to stop this stuff, why doesn't he? 
And the Bible doesn't give us neat answers to these questions, but what it does give us is stories like these to dignify our questions and to give us permission to wrestle with our doubt and our uncertainty. The only thing that is absolutely clear in this story is that a life with God does not mean everything in your life will be good. It means that when all is said and done, God will have worked out every detail of your life, even the most painful things, for your good and his glory. The reason I chose Genesis 37 and not Genesis 50 as our passage today is that I think most of us relate far more to Genesis 37 than we do to Genesis 50. I mean, thank God for Genesis 50, but you can't get to Genesis 50 unless you're willing to sit in Genesis 37. And Genesis 37, as we just read, is pretty bleak. You see, like many of us here in L.A., on the surface, Joseph's family is picture perfect. Large, prosperous, they got a lot of land. But it's very clear when you read Genesis 37 that behind this facade is full-on dysfunction. This is the brokenness of humanity on full display. This is generational trauma on full display. Why was Jacob so overt about his favoritism toward Joseph? It's because he was never the favorite. Why did he rush to get Joseph such nice things? Because he never got nice things. He was the one always overlooked. He was the one labeled as the black sheep. So the first chance he got, he says, Joseph, come here. I want to give you a coat. And it's okay that I'm not going to give it to anyone else. I want to give you the coat. Just as his dad's favoritism poisoned him, his favoritism poisoned his family. And I know all the parents in this room can resonate with this. Isn't it so funny how the things we can't stand about our own parents, the things we hate the most about our own parents, we become that. There are moments when I'm talking to my kids and I'm like, I am my mom. Like I am, I'm doing what she does. Generational patterns are real, and Genesis 37 shows you what happens when these patterns go unchecked. It's dark. And, you know, because we're very familiar with this story, I think we just kind of miss how much evil and wickedness are present in this passage. Like, you have to imagine your own brothers, your own flesh and blood, violently ripping off your most prized robe and then shoving you into a pit, naked, with no water. And you know what's crazy? The narrator makes it a point to say that right after they threw him into the pit, they sat down for a meal. Like how twisted do you have to be? How blinded by hatred and rage do you have to be that you can sit down for a meal while your younger brother is pleading for his life? He's like, I'm your brother. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, why are you doing this to me? And yet these cries fall on deaf ears. Joseph's brothers sell him off and take his prized coat, dip it in a goat's blood, deceive their father into thinking his beloved son is dead. And this is how Genesis 37 ends. That's it. Boom. There's no, but don't worry, God has a plan for all this. Jump over to Genesis 50 and you'll see how all this plays out. No, it just ends. Violence, rage, bitterness, and a lot of wailing. Jacob says, I'm never going to stop mourning until I die. Until the day I die. And guess what? The relationship between Joseph and his brothers don't get resolved until 20 years later. 20 years later. Okay, let me just, quick side note. 
If you are walking with someone in your life right now who is navigating a broken relationship, I know sometimes for many of us, it would just make it a lot easier if they would just reconcile with the person because you're like, look, like our family gatherings are really awkward. You know, Thanksgiving is coming around, Christmas is coming around, and it would just make a lot more sense if you guys, you know, were nice to each other again. And, you know, let's just brush this under the rug. If Genesis 37 shows us anything, it's that trauma can happen in a moment, but healing will take a lifetime. Healing is a process that will take years. You think Joseph had any inkling while he was sitting there in the bottom of the pit that he was going to forgive his brothers? What would Joseph have thought if someone said, I know you're down there, but just forgive them. And there's such a masterfulness in the way the narrator tells this story because rather than saying, God did this, God made this happen, God sent Joseph here, God orchestrated this, what you get in Genesis 37 is just a series of what feels like random coincidences. We didn't read verses 12 to 20, but basically it gives you the details of how Joseph even got to the point where his brothers threw him into the pit, right? And it's just like so many coincidences. What are the chances that Jacob sends Joseph miles away to Shechem, right? And he gets there, and what are the chances that he happens to run into some anonymous stranger who knows where his brothers went? And he's like, oh, he's not here. They went to Dothan. So Joseph heads over to Dothan. What are the chances that he doesn't get rescued. Instead, he gets sold to Midianite traders who just happen to be going to Egypt. And what are the chances that of all the people he could have been sold to, he gets sold to Potiphar, this person who is in Pharaoh's guard, right? Like, now, reading this, you're like, wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that it was God who led Joseph to the slaughter? Like it was God who led him to all these places so that he would be thrown into a pit? But that's the mastery of this text. If you actually read Genesis 37, there is not one mention of God in this entire chapter. Not even indirectly. Okay? You can look it up. God is never mentioned here. Because that's what life often feels like. We don't see God. We don't hear God. Sometimes it feels like God is utterly silent. So there is no clarity as to what parts of this story were God, what parts of this were Joseph and his brothers. It doesn't give us the neat theology that we all want. Like, what, what's human responsibility and what's God's sovereignty? Was it, like, what's what? What is clear, though, is that if any one of those things doesn't happen, Genesis 50 doesn't happen. It takes 22 years for Joseph to figure out why things happened the way they did. He couldn't see it in real time, just like you and I often don't see in real time why things are happening to us. Why are we in this conflict right now with this person? Like, we don't know. Like, what is the good that's coming at the end of this? We don't know. But at the end of the story, I imagine Joseph walked back the past two decades of his life which at times were absolutely miserable. And I think he thought, huh, if any of those things don't happen, like if God actually rescued me from the pit that day, 
or if my brothers actually killed me in the pit that day, I might have still been a spoiled, self-absorbed, narcissistic child. My brothers would still hate me. Egypt and Israel would have starved to death in the famine. I would never have discovered what my gifts are, and none of us would even have children to keep the family line going. Everything had to happen exactly the way it did for God to accomplish his purposes in and through Joseph's life. And please hear me when I say this. Knowing how the story ends doesn't nullify the terrible things that happen in the middle. It doesn't. It doesn't absolve us from the things that we've done, and it doesn't absolve us from the things that have happened to us. Even after Joseph has become the second most powerful man in Egypt, we read multiple times from Genesis 42 to 50 that whenever Joseph is in the presence of his brothers, he weeps. Like over and over again, it's strange. The narrator keeps pointing out, like Simeon's talking to Joseph and he turns around and he just starts weeping. And it's as if the narrator wants to say, just because he's the most powerful man in Egypt right now doesn't erase everything that his brothers did to him. He is a broken man that has been broken over and over and over again. Even when they're bowing down before him, Joseph is not Remember that dream I had when I was 17? It happened. No. It says he's weeping. He's weeping. And he remembers everything. In Genesis 45, when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, he says, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. Like, remember, you did this to me. You made my life a living hell. That is a fact. And we're not going to skirt around that. But in the same breath, he says, but you don't have to blame yourselves anymore because it was God who sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives. The tension of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Joseph is like, yes, you need to know what you did to me. You need to know how you've hurt me, and you need to know it's been a miserable time. But what you intended for harm, God meant it for good. In premarital counseling, um, I have couples do this activity where they map out their lives from birth to the present. And as you spend time with people, you realize there are so many people sitting in this room who are carrying unimaginable trauma and grief that you would not know. Like you come on Sunday morning and you think everyone's doing okay and everyone puts on a good face and everyone's wearing a mask. People are holding some unthinkable trauma from their past and their childhood. So much brokenness, abandonment, and abuse. And they're sharing their stories and sometimes we will just sit together in silence and we will cry. But after the exercise, I will often ask the question, and it's meant to make people think, is there anything in your life, if you could go back, that you would erase? And often a lot of people say, absolutely, I would erase that. I would erase the fact that my dad cheated on my mom. I would erase the fact that I had no parents growing up. I would erase the fact that I was abused as a child. I would erase that stupid mistake that got me kicked out of school and jeopardized my future. Yeah, I would erase all of that, but then I'll ask a second question. 
without minimizing anything you've done or anything that has been done to you, would you erase it if it meant you wouldn't be sitting here today? And often without fail, 100% of the time, often with tears in their eyes, they'll say no, of course not. And you could ask, why, Jason, does it have to be this hard? Why couldn't the path be easier? Like, if God knew Joseph was going to be this powerful person in Egypt, why have him go through all of that stuff? And we can't answer that question because the ways of God are often hidden to us. All we know is that nothing we do and nothing that happens in our lives is outside of God's control. He has the power to take the worst of human evil and turn it into something good. He has the power to take all of our broken pieces and use them to create a beautiful work of art. I know some of you are in the careers and in the professions and in the industries you are today because of something that happened to you when you were younger. I know so many people who are in law today because they experienced injustice. I know people who are doing great work in the city because they know what poverty feels like. I'm sure many of you have heard the popular story in Eastern folklore. It's the story of a man uh, who lost his horse, right? He had a horse. His horse ran away. Neighbor came to him and said, bad luck, lost your horse. And the man said, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days later, the horse comes back with 20 other wild horses. Neighbor comes back and says, Oh my gosh, it's actually good luck that your horse went away. The man says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? Then the next day, his young son is out, and he's trying to tame one of these wild horses, and these wild horses, without knowing, kicks him in the leg, and he breaks his son's leg. The neighbor comes back and says, ooh, wild horses, bad luck. The man says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? few days go by, a bunch of thugs come to the house looking for recruits to join their gang, and they're looking for all the able-bodied men, and they look at his son, and his leg is broken, and they're like, we can't use him. Neighbor comes back and says, it was good that your son's leg was broken. He says, what do I know about good luck or bad luck? In this small series of episodes, you see very clearly, we don't know what lies ahead, and we don't really know why things happen. And maybe we won't know until we stand before God face to face. But I believe when that day comes, we won't even need to ask God why, because we will know why. All of it was to illuminate the face of Christ in our lives and to make us more like him. God will stop at nothing to accomplish his purposes in our lives even if it means shattering all of our preconceived notions about what is good and what is not. And you may say, I don't want any part of a God like that. If you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're like, wow, he's telling me that my life is going to have a lot of pain and sometimes God's going to be using that pain and, and working that pain into this work of art, I don't want any part of a God who would allow so much pain in my life. I don't care if you say it's ultimately for my good or I'll realize it in 20 years. I don't want it. I'm opting out. But friends, don't you see that the only thing you cannot opt out of in this life is pain. It's the inevitable result of living in a broken world. 
Uh, there's this interview between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert that's making its rounds online. And it's one of the most gut-wrenching conversations I've ever seen. These two men are well acquainted with grief and suffering. If you know their stories, both of them lost their dads at a very early age in really tragic ways. Colbert lost his dad in a plane crash. Um, Anderson Cooper lost his dad when a heart, open heart surgery went wrong. Both men also lost their moms recently. Anderson Cooper's brother took his own life. And so they're, like, they're bringing all this heaviness to this conversation. And there's a section of the interview where I think it's like the climax of the conversation when, when, when Anderson Cooper, with tears, he pauses and he says to Colbert, you said in an interview once, what punishments of God are not gifts? And he's trying to gather himself, and after a painful second or two, he says, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? And Colbert, also with tears in his eyes, replies, yes, because it's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping it. Whether we like it or not, all of us will need to find a way to make sense of pain and loss and suffering. The question today is, will you turn to God in your pain, or will you turn from God in your pain? One response says, I can't possibly hold on to God in a world like this. The other says, how can I not hold on to God in a world like this? How can I not? And the Bible tells us if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And I believe if we are willing to trust him, even when our lives look bleak, in the moments and seasons when we see no hope or no silver lining, he may not show us exactly how things will pan out in the end, but he will show us his scars. And he will say, I know what it means to weep. You see, there was another Joseph. There was another son who was robed in majesty. Another son who was the apple of his father's eye. Sold for pieces of silver, rejected by his own family, stripped naked, abandoned, and cast into the pit. And when he pleaded with his father, please take this cup from me, the answer was no. The God of the universe was utterly silent. And yet through blood, sweat, and tears, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane whispers, yet not my will, but yours be done. Did God put Jesus on the cross? No. You and I did. But did God from the very beginning have a plan to save humanity through Jesus' suffering? Absolutely. Friends, you may be sitting at the bottom of the pit today, and maybe you're crying out for relief, wondering, why, God, are you doing this to me? Why do these things just always happen to me? And though he may not always give us neat answers to our questions, what he does give us is Jesus. And he shows us, if this is Jesus' story, surely this can be your story as well. What was true when Joseph was 39 was absolutely true when he was 17. He just couldn't see it yet. Friends, it may take you five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 22 years for you to see the good 
God is doing in your life. But the heart of true faith is not to believe it when you see it. The heart of true faith is to believe it when you don't see it, when you can't see it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So may we draw near to God again today in our doubts, in our wrestling, in our confusion, knowing that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God draws near to us. Let's pray. want to give us just a moment to respond to this word today, and especially if you, like Joseph, find yourself at the bottom of a pit. You find yourself in the middle of navigating a, a, just a very broken relationship, or things are happening to you that you cannot understand, lost your job, friendship problems, whatever it may be. In this moment, would you ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate Jesus, to say, I don't know why, God, but I see your scars, and I know that you understand what it means to weep. Help me to turn to you now, even when I don't see the good. Just take a moment to say that prayer. confess that often we don't see you we don't feel your presence and sometimes it feels like you are absent in our lives but we thank you for the story of Joseph that reminds us that you are orchestrating every conversation every interaction every failure every mistake, every small detail of our lives, ultimately for our good and for your glory. And I know for many of us today, it's probably so hard to believe that because we don't see the good. We don't understand how something we've experienced could possibly be good. But we thank you that in response, you give us your son over and over and over again to remind us, you know what it is like to be at the bottom of the pit, but also to remind us that there is always new life and resurrection on the horizon. 
And so, God, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters in this room today that we would cling to Jesus. Though we don't know how things will pan out and we don't know what the story you're writing for us looks like because your ways are often hidden and long, we ask that you would give us patience and you would give us faith and you would give us hope knowing that you are making all things new and you will use everything to bring uh, our lives in this world um, and to make it new. We thank you for this word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able, I'm going to invite us to stand and we want to just respond to this word singing two songs of praise. I think the beauty of, of this time of singing that we have is you know, there is something powerful about singing words even when we don't always feel, feel them, even when we don't know if we believe them. I think there is a beauty, and I think God receives praise through tears. He receives our praise exactly as we give it. Let's worship together. <laughs> 